0: Direct your attention back to John chapter three. We're stepping back into the middle of a conversation, a conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. This is a conversation that has echoed throughout the ages. Nicodemus came with his agenda. He wanted to know who Jesus is. He begins by saying, We know you're a man from God. No one could do the things that you do unless he's from God. Nicodemus had his agenda. But Jesus had another. Jesus redirects the attention away from where Nicodemus was going to put it on the fact that the only way one can enter the kingdom of God is by being born again. It's earlier in this chapter, in fact, in verse 3, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At that moment, the framework that Nicodemus had for his life was broken. This was an earth-shattering statement that Jesus made that left Nicodemus reeling, trying to figure out how can one truly be saved. Because Jesus went on to say, Nicodemus, not only must you be born again, born from above, it's a work of the Spirit, and you can't control that. The Spirit works like the wind. The Spirit moves where the Spirit will, and you have no power over that. When we begin in verse 9, we see Nicodemus is still trying to wrap his mind around what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus said to him, and this is in verse 9, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Pray with me. God, grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are inclined to obey you. May you be glorified, Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, we pray. And the church said, Amen. One statement that I can make with absolute certainty about all of humanity is this. Every human longs for God. Now I'm not just talking about this congregation. I'm not just talking about churches that are meeting on Sunday morning around the globe. I'm talking about every human being. Whether it be the most faithful Christian you know. Or whether it be the most hardened atheist you know. Every human has a longing for God. Now he or she may not put it in those words. They may not use that vocabulary. But when they seek for joy, they are seeking for God. When we seek for peace and security, we are seeking for God, When we seek to be loved, we are seeking for God. For God made us with those desires. God has implanted those desires within us so that we would seek Him to fulfill those desires. The problem happens when we begin to meet those desires outside of God. When we seek for joy apart from God, we end up disappointed. When we seek for peace and security apart from God, we find out those things really do not give us peace. And when we seek love apart from God, we end up with heartbreak. Seeking fulfillment apart from God is what we call sin. It will always disappoint had a very very vivid picture of this back in July Emma wasn't doing very well so we called 911 and she was transported to the hospital on a Thursday night by ambulance we got to the hospital to the ER at about 10 about 3 a.m. 3.30 we were moved up to a room needless to say the next day we were very tired so I decided you know, I'm tired, I'm weary, but we're still wanting to hear the doctor. So I'm going to go downstairs and enjoy one of the great blessings from God. A good, hot cup of uh, coffee. So I'll make my way downstairs, get a cup of coffee. And as I'm getting ready to check out, I look for the, to the right, and I notice they have a cooler filled with ice cream. God is good. I get some coffee some ice cream. And I decide as I'm making my way back up to the room that I'm not going to wait to enjoy either one. I'm going to enjoy the sip of coffee now and I'm going to open the ice cream now because I can enjoy it now and hide the evidence that I ever ate it. (laughs) Now I'd gotten one of those cones that's pre-made and has the chocolate on top so I set my coffee down and I open it and I'm walking down the hallway like a a 48-year-old kid with coffee in one hand and ice cream cone in the other. And I lean over and I take a bite, oh, it's so good, as I'm pulling it away from my mouth, the top of the ice cream falls off on the floor, okay, I'll clean that up, but I've still got my coffee, still good, go upstairs, they're doing some things with Emma, so I leave the room and I go to a day room and I've got a cup of coffee and a book that I'm reading, I'm thinking this is good, so I sit down, I'm holding the coffee, and the next thing I know, I feel something very hot on my ankles because I fell asleep and the coffee slid out of my hands and spilled all over the floor and I thought that about sums it up doesn't it? That's a picture of life that is seeking fulfillment outside of God. It's good for the moment but it never lasts. It's good for that that temporary fix but unless we recognize that God is the source of the joy, of the peace, the security and the love That we hunger for. Our efforts will always end up on the floor spilt. That's what Nicodemus is wrestling with. He wants to know God. His life has been spent in the pursuit of knowing God. So when the question is put to Nicodemus. How can you know God? How can you experience joy and peace and love and security? Nicodemus' answer is very simple. Be religious and do the right thing go to church. Be good. I fear that most of us would fall into that same category. Even though we know the language of grace and faith, deep down I'm afraid that there is still this strong current that pushes us to the belief that we are saved by good works, by going to church, by being kind. And so we think, yes, I do those things. I will enter the kingdom and have joy and peace, security and love. I'll know God. But then Jesus shatters that illusion. Verse 3, you have to be born again. You can go to church, but if you are not born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. You may be the best person person you can be but if you're not born again you will not see God these words cause Nicodemus to stagger like a boxer hit by an uppercut so I ask how can these things be you and I know that feeling when our world shattered. If you have, maybe you had invested in the stock market, all of a sudden that that stock hits the bottom and you feel this empty feeling in the pit of your stomach, like that was my hope, and now it's gone, that's Nicodemus. My hope is that I'm a good teacher. I follow the Torah and I do the right things. But Jesus shows that if we invest in that account, it is empty. So when Nicodemus is questioned in verse 9, how can these things be? He's really asking, if religion cannot save me, then what hope do I have of being saved? If being good can't save me, what hope do I have of being saved? Jesus answers. He answers us by saying that our hope is this, that God has come down to meet us. Where you and I could not ascend up to heaven to meet God on our own. He has descended to us to meet us. Verse 10, as Jesus answers Nicodemus, there's a bit of of sarcasm, a bit of rebuke in his answer. Notice he says, are you the teacher of Israel? He doesn't say, are you a teacher? He says, are you the teacher? Apparently, Nicodemus had a a standing of high reputation in the community as being the preeminent teacher of Judaism. It's as if he had the Ph.D. in theology and he was the man you wanted to give instruction. And Jesus says, are you the teacher and you really don't understand this? Verse 11, Jesus says, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now Jesus is making this point. Nicodemus, you know the scripture, but you don't believe it. Nicodemus, you know things about the Messiah, but you really don't believe in the Messiah You see, the issue was not what Nicodemus knew, it's what Nicodemus believed because there is a difference between knowing and believing. You can know something and not believe it. A man by the name of Elisha Otis exemplifies this. The time that uh, Elisha Otis lived, elevators were being, being built and put into buildings. However, here's the problem. The elevators had no braking system. Most of them were just open platforms. So no building was built over six stories tall out of fear of what might happen if the elevator falls. And even then, people were a little bit nervous about getting on elevators, and rightly so. So Elisha Otis had an idea. What if he could invent a braking system that would stop elevators? Now buildings would not be limited to six stories. They could go much higher. So Elisha... Otis began working on a braking system. And he unveiled his braking system for elevators at the Chicago World Fair. There weren't many people buying. Oh, they understood the, the premise. As he explained the technology, people nodded and said, Yeah, I see what you're saying, but none would be willing to buy into the system. So, this is what he decided. He built a huge platform stretching more than six stories high. And he would get on an elevator, pulled up by a rope. And as he was at the top through a speaker system, he would say, I'm going to demonstrate to you my braking system. Then he would reach up and cut the rope. Needless to say, the braking system worked. If you step on an elevator and see Otis Elevator, well, now you know the rest of the story. You know what the difference between knowing and believing is? Knowing is understanding how the brakes work. Believing is cutting the rope. You see, we need to remember that our focus is not just studying the Bible to know the Bible. Our focus is studying the Bible to know God, to believe God, to live for God. So Jesus is pushing Nicodemus by saying, you know the scripture, but you don't believe it. I am one that has come to you, and you don't believe it. And he goes on in verse 12 because he says, if I've told you earthly things you don't believe, how can I believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's believed that the earthly things Jesus had spoken of were the illustrations of new birth. The illustrations of the wind to show that new birth is done by faith and by the power of God. And he's saying you have to get the basics, Nicodemus. You see, we have a tendency to always want deep and depth. And there's nothing wrong with depth. We need to study for depth. But we never move beyond the foundational truth that our salvation is by faith, through grace, and all that through Jesus Christ. No matter what we learn, we never move beyond that. We need to go deeper in the faith. But our depth never goes beyond that foundational truth. I'm always reminded of a theologian by the name of Carl Barth, who was brilliant. Brilliant theologian. He's touring the United States in the early part of the 1960s. And after a lecture at the University of Chicago, a room of reporters gathered, and they're asking him questions. And one reporter asked him a question, Dr. Barth, what is the most profound theological statement you have ever come across? Everybody kind of paused for a moment, waiting to hear what this brilliant Erudite man would say. He looked at them and he said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's easy as we study the Scripture to become enamored with things that may be beyond us, but we must never move beyond the foundational truth That we are born again by the grace of God. That's the fundamental of our faith. So Jesus has answered Nicodemus. These things can be because I've come down from God to show them to you. Believe me, Nicodemus. But the question still hangs in the air. How can we be born again? How can we have new birth? That's where Jesus moves next in verses 13 through 15. We can experience the new birth because of what Jesus did on the cross. Verse 13 places this action firmly in the realm of grace. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has gone up to God on their own to bring this down, Nicodemus. I have come to reveal to you how you can be born again. And not only to reveal it, but to make the way. Verse 14, Jesus explains how we can be born again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. In the earlier part of this conversation, Jesus uses the imagery of birth to talk about being born from above. Now He goes back to the Old Testament. He uses a moment from Israel's history to show what the cross means and how the new birth happens. Now to understand the statement in verse 14 we must understand what happened in Numbers 21. The children of Israel have left Egypt and they're making their way through the wilderness. But along the way they start grumbling and complaining. Where are we going to get water? When are we going to get there Moses? Moses, why did God, has God abandoned us? Why did He do it like this? You'll find that in the Old Testament, one of the greatest manifestations of our sin is ungratitude. Complaining, grumbling. A sin that God takes very seriously because it shows doubt in God and it it doesn't recognize God is at work in all things. So God gets their attention. He judges them. He judges them by this. He sends snakes among them. Poisonous snakes. They're referred to as fiery serpents because of the color of their skin. Think about copperheads. If there is ever a motivation to be thankful, the idea of a plague of copperheads would do it. People are being bitten and they're dying. The people recognize that this is God saying, repent, and that's what they do people are still dying. So now, because the people have repented, God does something, something unique. He says, Moses, I want you to have a brass snake fashion, and I want you to put it on a pole. And as you walk through the camp with that pole, as people gaze upon that, they'll be healed. If you've ever seen a symbol for the medical profession, you're familiar with this imagery. Look into that serpent on the pole and be healed. Now, Jesus draws a parallel. Just as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is teaching us how the new birth happens. So the question is this. When they looked up at the serpent, what did they see? And when we look at the cross, what do we see? When Israel looked upon that brass serpent, they saw the consequence of their sin. When we look at the cross, we see the consequence of our sin. And that consequence is death. You recognize that death came into this world because we rebelled against God. Every funeral service is a reminder that sin is in the world and the consequences of sin is death. Every cemetery you drive by is a visual reminder that we are in a fallen world. But on the cross, when we see Jesus, we see one who is bearing death on our behalf. You may ask, well, if Jesus took death on our behalf, why do we still die? Death still occurs because we await the redemption of these bodies. We await the day He returns and we are transformed. And when these bodies that are prone to decay, decay no more. When that which is mortal puts on immortality. When this body that is corruptible puts on incorruption. But we are still redeemed so we do not have to fear death because of what Jesus did on the cross. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is at the graveside of Lazarus, Martha meets him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus looks at her and he says, do you believe your brother will rise again? Martha says, yes, Lord, he'll rise again and the last day on the the resurrection. And Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. When we look at the cross, we see one taking death on our behalf. So we need not fear death. We need not worry about death. We know one and are in one who has overcome death we can share the testimony of one Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist, that upon his deathbed he said these words, You will soon hear that Dwight Moody has died. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive at that moment than I have ever been before. Believer, when we look at the cross, we see one who has taken death for us. That's why at every funeral I quote the words of C.S. Lewis who once said, Christians never really say goodbye. We simply say, See you later. We look at the cross and we see the consequence of our sin. And we also see this the shame of our sin. When Israel looked at the serpent, there was a sense of shame because they knew, they knew that what was upon that stick was because of them. They knew that their illnesses, the death, the serpents, was because of them. And there was a sense of shame. When we look at the cross, we see one who bore shame on our behalf. Shame is that feeling of humiliation or distress, brought about by wrong behavior, or foolish behavior. But in reality, you and I don't have to define shame, we know it. We know that feeling when we are caught, when we are guilty. It's the embarrassment of sin. And the reality is, we don't have to be the perpetrator to know that sense of shame. There are those who feel a sense of shame because they have suffered because of the sinful acts of others. Their life is spent trying to get rid of the shame. Trying to get rid of the humiliation. Church, when we look at the cross, we see one who has taken shame on our behalf. You and I, we sanitize the cross. We make it nice. We make it palatable. We make it non-offensive. If we had seen the cross the day Jesus was crucified, you and I would have been absolutely shocked and mortified. When Jesus speaks of lifted up, he speaks of the cross, but he wasn't lifted up way in the air. In reality, his feet were probably four to six inches off the ground. So people around him could mock him, spit on him. That's why we have records of conversations. He was close enough to talk. But the thing we overlook, the thing we clean up the most is this. When our Lord was on the cross, He hung there naked, exposed. The creator of the universe, not wrapped in glory, but embarrassed, humiliated. Why did He do that? Because He bore the shame sin you and I don't have to bear that shame when we look at the cross we see the one who has taken shame for us and today if you are carrying that heavy burden of guilt and shame hear me clearly our Lord Jesus took that on your behalf he took that sin if you've suffered as a victim he has suffered With you and on your behalf also. When we look at the cross, we see one who died for us. One who took our shame. And one who bore the wrath of God for us. That snake was a symbol of God's anger over sin. When we look at the cross, we see God's anger over our sin. We see His wrath. Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross he did it for us believers what that means is that we may have trials and tribulations on this earth we will but believer you and I will never face the wrath of God never and I'm afraid we forget the enormous value of that like many of you I've followed the news reports when hurricane Florence was coming in and when the word went out, evacuate, get out of the path of this storm. Millions heeded that counsel, And I could not help but think, did you know one day there is a storm coming? It is the storm of God's judgment. When the Bible speaks of Jesus coming on the clouds, the imagery from the Psalms in the Old Testament is not big, white, puffy clouds like cotton balls. No, the imagery is storm clouds. Dark, dreadful. Containing the storm of God's wrath. When that storm comes, there will be no escaping it. That's why the evacuation call is going out now. All who would come to Christ now don't have to fear that storm. That's why He says, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. A quality of life, a duration of life, a blessing of the kingdom of God. He says, that's how the new birth comes to be. Have you experienced that? Don't be like a Nicodemus holding on to your works. Let them go and trust what God has done on the cross. And have eternal life. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. Nathan and I are going to be at the front as we begin to sing this hymn, this wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts where he talks about surveying the wondrous cross. If you need to respond, if you have questions about following Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come. Now as you come and you have questions about the cross, this is what we will do. We're going to meet with you, but what we'll do is we'll wait till after the service is over. We don't want there to be that pressure of feeling like everybody's watching. We'll just ask you to come forward and maybe wait on the front row. And then after the service, we'll take as much time as needed to explain what it means to be born again. But this is a time where you can respond. Where the Spirit of God is is moving on your heart. Lay the fear aside. Jesus has taken it. Don't carry that shame anymore. Jesus has taken it. Don't be fearful of the day of judgment. For Jesus has taken the wrath of God. Oh Lord, thank you for the great gift you have given us. Father, we didn't come up and make Jesus come down. He did this, Father, in your great plan. He did this. He came and, Father, he took the form of a servant and was obedient even unto death. Even death on a cross. Thank you, Lord. Bring us anew to recognize our only hope is faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.